0: I wanna ask you to get a Bible somewhere and turn to the book of Isaiah, Prophecy of Isaiah, chapter fifty-three. We'll let the boys and girls be dismissed to the children's class if you would like them to go. Parents, kids up through age eight can go at your discretion, or they can stay in here and hear the word of God in here. Isaiah fifty three is our text today, and I wanna and really encourage everybody to get a Bible if you can, grab one from near under nearby under the chair or on your phone or tablet or whatever it is, but look up Isaiah 53, and let's put it right in front of our eyes. I know it's on the screen as I preach, but there is nothing, I don't think, quite like having the text right in front of your eyes, and you can glance forward and back and look intently at the wording and follow along right for yourself in your own copy of the scripture. So, If you would do that, I think it would be a real blessing. Isaiah fifty-three. On the front of our building, there's a cross. Behind me here, in the baptistry, there's a cross. The front of the pulpit, there's a cross. This is indisputably the most recognized symbol of Christianity across the globe, and yet for many people, it's it's merely an icon or a trinket, um, a little token. It reminds them of their youth,
1: perhaps. To some people, the cross was simply uh, an example of
0: goodness and kindness and selflessness. Other people,
1: to them, the cross is a sad reality of
0: mistaken identity, a victim of unfortunate circumstances, a person who was in the wrong place at the wrong time, and they view the cross and the person who died on the cross sympathetically, but not understanding the significance of that old rugged cross. And I want to ask you this morning, what do you see when you, in your mind's eye, look to that cross? When you see the Savior hanging there among criminals, what is that cross to you? I'll tell you when the
1: wonder of the cross first dawned upon me. I was sitting on a brown Plaid couch staring down at orange shag
0: carpet in the late 1970s. And my father, in the middle of that couch, was reading the account and explaining the account of Abraham's preparing to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice on an altar. Remember, he even lifted up that knife and was ready to plunge it into the chest of his son. And out of the Heavens, the Lord speaks to him. An angel stops him. And in place of the son, the Lord points to a ram caught in a thicket that God himself had provided this sacrifice. And the Lord had granted this animal then to become the substitute for the son, that the son may live and the lamb would take its place. And it really began to dawn on me for the first time that that's the Lord Jesus Christ who on that cross took my place,
1: that I was the son that should have died, that I was the one who should have been offered
0: up to God, um, the sacrifice, the... the 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 one who should have been slain all of my sins against god deserved his judgment blood deserved to be shed but the lord jesus christ took my place and my life was really has been radically shaped by that realization ever since long ago the lord inspired the prophet isaiah to show us the glory of that cross and he see was led by the Holy Spirit, he predicted the coming of someone that he called the servant of the Lord, the servant of Jehovah. And this servant would be unlike any other servant who'd ever come before. Unlike the people of Israel themselves who were rebellious and disobedient to God, this servant would have an ear to hear. This servant would live by every word that proceeded from the mouth of God. This servant would give himself, his whole body and soul to do the will of God in heaven. This servant would be absolutely committed to the Father's plan, and he would come and bring salvation to God's people. To bring Israel back to God, and he would be successful in accomplishing that mission. And I want to ask you how can God bring salvation to guilty sinners? I want to ask, I want to put before you that that is the greatest conundrum in all the world. How can a holy and righteous God
1: Yet bring salvation to guilty sinners. This is the great problem of the universe. And it can be solved in no other way but the salvation that God has provided. Remember that God had promised back in chapter
0: 40 that sins would receive double their. Appropriate due, like something folded over double on itself, something that's an exact match. Sin would receive the exact due, the exact recompense for all of its injustice against a holy God. You realize that that's the greatest problem in the world? That God could somehow forgive any sinners while still being just himself?
1: That is the greatest problem in all the world. And somebody say, well, you know, God can just overlook it.
0: Can't God just sort of sweep it under the rug, just let things go? Does he have to hold on to it? Can he just pretend like my sins never happened? And I just say to you, friend, you just, you don't know God. For God is holy and righteous and good. He is just. And no injustice will go undealt with. For he is sovereign over all. All this world will be pure and holy. Sin must be dealt with. The answer to that great conundrum of history is revealed in this ancient prophecy from Isaiah. And we're going to read the first six verses of this chapter here together this morning. Would you?
1: This is a prophecy about a people who had heard the prophets,
0: right? You see that right in verse 1. They had heard the prophets. These are people to whom the mighty acts of God had been revealed, but they had not believed what they had heard. They did not entrust themselves to the Lord who acted so mightily in their midst. Quoting this very text. John says in his gospel, John chapter 12 and verse 17, even though Jesus had done so many signs or miracles, we had seen the mighty arm of God, even though Jesus had done so many signs or miracles before them, yet still they did not believe in him. And to this point in John's gospel, John has recorded seven Miracles or signs of the Lord Jesus that have increased in difficulty, looking at them from a human perspective, starting off with the miracle of his turning, you know what his first miracle was, right? Turning water into wine at the wedding feast in Cana, but then progressing on to the healing of people with diseases the casting out of demons, and finally culminating in literally raising a man to life who had already been dead for a number of days. I mean, this was an amazing display of the mighty arm of God. It was revealed to them. But even though they saw these miracles with their own eyes, they didn't have eyes to truly see. The Messiah.
1: And I want to tell you that faith, belief, is the very heart of Christianity.
0: It's not believing without evidence, without revelation. That's not what faith is. Rather, faith actually opens your eyes so you can see that revelation for what it is. You know, two people can actually look at the same set of "Quote unquote facts" and come to very different conclusions. Have you ever experienced that? Say, what's wrong? Are, oh, do we have? Are we looking at different things? No, we're looking at the same thing. Happens all the time in science, and history, and psychology, and economics, and politics, and statistics. That's famous for that, right? You can take it's said that you can take statistics and make them say anything you want to say. Right. Because, and, you know, multiple studies have demonstrated this, you know, that the, you can look at the same things and come to different conclusions because everyone's conclusions are affected by their methodologies and their reasoning, which is in turn affected by their fundamental assumptions. Right. But there is a God cuts through all of our conflicting presuppositions with a divine objective word. And when that word is received, when that word is believed, then we're able to see things as they truly are.
1: The rebellious man says, all right, if I see it, I'll believe it. But the Lord says, No, you believe it, and you'll see. You'll see it. You gotta be like those priests
0: who hook the Lord at his word in leading Israel through the Jordan River and literally, I mean, put their foot right on the edge of that water, ready to step right into that, right into that overflowing river,
1: and God in that moment parts it all, right? That's the way. The gospel works. These people,
0: the people who are bearing testimony in this chapter, right? And you see that it's coming from a personal testimony standpoint. We this and we this. These people who are bearing testimony are bearing testimony to the fact that their conclusions, their original conclusions and estimation of things actually conflicted with reality. They were looking at the same thing, but coming to a very different conclusion. But it's also written from the viewpoint of people who have finally come to see reality, though once they had formed a very different opinion. And you see that sort of tension between two opposing viewpoints of Jesus and his sufferings on the cross, his life his ministry. You see these two posing views of Jesus right in verse 2. Look at verse 2, and notice that you see in that one verse the viewpoint of both him. You see that in the verse? The viewpoint of him and the viewpoint of we. Verse 2, on the one hand, he, that is the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, grew up before him like a young plant, like a sapling, like a tender shoot. On the other hand, like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. I know there's a semicolon in there. I, you know, the punctuation is not, you know, original, and I think it's probably just better to read it all together. Like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So there's already a conflicting viewpoint on this servant and how he's being viewed right from the very beginning. Before God, the Messiah, the promised servant, is like a tender shoot. He is, in fact, that offshoot, that shoot that was promised back in Isaiah chapter 11. You remember back there? You might want turn there, or maybe I think we might have it on the screen. This is the, the the shoot that would come up from the stump of Jesse and would become a branch. And that branch would be filled with the Spirit and would bear fruit for God. Here is that shoot coming up out of that stump. And the image, of course, was this, that the house of David, the royal dynasty of David, would be cut off by God. Like, like you, you take a big thick vine and you just whack it off with the, a machete. You just whack it off and there's just a stump left. God would bring his razor from the east, as it were, and cut off the household of David for the many sins of Israel, for unbelief, for rebellion against God, and only a stump would be left. But a single great descendant of David would spring up from that cut-off stump and would become a mighty branch that would bring a fruitful kingdom for the people of God in the end. That was the imagery. And this young plant, this tender shoot,
1: grew up before God. And he studied and he prayed. And he was in the temple about his father's business, seeking
0: after the things of God day and night, serving the Lord faithfully in his calling. As a young man, he grew up before him like a young plant. Well, that's the Lord's view, but to the eyes of unbelievers, he is just a
1: root out of dry ground. And the word dry ground here is a term that could be
0: translated desert. It's talking about a dry and barren, drought-stricken, in fact, it often refers to drought as well, drought-stricken land. You know, not a lot we don't have to work hard to imagine that right now, since we haven't had rain since July the fifth. At our house we planted new sections of grass in a place where it had died out. About the middle of July. Well, you can imagine how well that's doing, right? Their expectation was, you know, this little sapling it's growing up in this dry and barren land it's this thing can't it can't last. It's gonna wither. This is a flash in the pan Messiah, like so many before.
1: It's nothing to worry about, nothing to be concerned about. Unbelief. That was their view. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, even to give him a second glance. No beauty that we should desire him. No form or majesty. No beauty. You know, he claimed to be the king, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But when
0: he refused to be crowned king of the Jews by
1: force, instead set his face toward inevitable death, they saw nothing in him, nothing majestic or beautiful anymore. And so They despised
0: and rejected him. And the path that he chose was one that surely did lead to sorrows and grief. Verse 3. It did, didn't it? It led to sorrows and grief. And this is a reference actually to Jesus' physical suffering. Verse 3, I say, is a reference to Jesus' physical suffering. If you have an ESV Bible, Look at the footnotes for these two words, sorrows and grief. And you see that the word sorrows usually refers to physical pain. And that the word grief is actually usually translated in the Bible as sickness or disease, physical suffering. And in the final hours before our Savior's death, he did suffer incredible pain and Physical suffering that he endured for hours under the torture of the Romans, and it was so bad. This physical suffering that he was one as who, as one from whom men hide their faces. Right, they couldn't bear to even look upon this one whose appearance was marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. And in the view of these unbelieving people, what was going on on the cross? What was happening? What was the meaning of this horrible crucifixion, if there was a meaning? How did they view it? Well, the answer is in the use of the word esteemed. Look at verses 3 and 4 see that word? It's in both those verses, the word esteemed in the ESV translation, which means to consider or to make a determination about something, to mull something over, to evaluate it, and then to make a determination. We all do that, right? We all consider something. We all esteem things in a certain way. And so in verse three, how did they esteem him? Well, their determination was that he was
1: a nothing. They esteemed him not. They thought in their minds that he's not
0: worthy of consideration, really, further consideration.
1: He's just nothing to think about. They dismissed him. They dismissed his claims. And then in verse 4, see
0: again how they were thinking about him. Their considered determination was that, in fact, that he was getting what he deserved, right? We esteemed him, what? Stricken and smitten by God and afflicted by God. Their view was that God was punishing
1: him. So now I ask you, was that the case? Was God punishing him? What is true
0: here? What is the believing way to see the reality of what was actually happening? And the answer of course to that question is that they were partially right. But they were wrong in such a fundamental way that they missed God's whole provision for their salvation. They were right in this sense that the cross was the work of God. And Isaiah goes on to make that explicit down in verse 10. If you'll just jump ahead just a few verses and look at verse 10, he records this. It was, you see where I am? It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. God has put him to To grief. This is God's doing. And if you look in verse 5, further, this crushing by God was, as verse 5 says, for transgressions. It was a crushing for transgressions, it was a crushing for iniquities. So God was revealing then that the death of Jesus Christ on the cross was a divine
1: punishment for sin. We sometimes use the term penal. This was a
0: punishment. This was a judgment of God's justice upon wickedness when Jesus was being crushed on the cross.
1: But notice the amazing twist in verse 5. What was unexpected
0: in their unbelief, but now they had come to see Here's the reality of what was happening on that cross. He was pierced for what? For our transgressions.
1: And he was crushed for our iniquities. How could it be otherwise? He had none of his own.
0: Right In verse 9, it will go on to say that he has done no violence. That there was no deceit in his mouth. There are no iniquities in himself for which to be punished but he was pierced and he was crushed in the place of others in other words his death was substitutionary or sometimes we say it was vicarious it was being done in our place his death was a penal Substitutionary death, to take the judgment of God for the sins of others, to endure God's judgment in their stead and in their place.
1: We see it again in verse 6. All we, like so many sheep, have just gone astray.
0: We have turned, every one of us, they say, to his own way. We have sinned, we have departed from God, and the Bible makes that abundantly clear. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Everyone has gone his own way.
1: Your own way might be a little different from my own way.
0: Not every one of our stories of rebellion against God are the same, but they all are characterized by this sad commonality that all of them are going our own way, going astray from the God who made us. But look at the end of the verse, and the Lord has laid on Him that is on the Messiah, the servant. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Hallelujah.
1: What a savior. See him bear away all of the guilt for your sin.
0: See him suffer willingly in your place. The exact double bearing in his body and soul for all of your sins and your transgressions, all of the times you have wandered away from the God who made you, there on that cross, look, that's the justice of God and the love of God in that same moment. Because of Christ, God is able to be both just and the justifier of those who believe in him. Even sinners though they were, yet declared to be righteous by God. Why? Because their sin has been paid for. Because it has been dealt with righteously. God does not turn away from himself and his own righteousness, rather he upholds his righteousness and manifests it on that cross for your sin when you are a believer in him. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more.
1: Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Wouldn't you like to bear your sin no longer? To carry it no more?
0: Wouldn't you like for it to be off of your shoulders
1: and being born by another? This is what they came to see. And when Jesus deals with sin, he also deals with
0: the effects of sin that come to us through the curse. And I think that's really what he's getting at in verse 4. And we're going to jump back to verse 4 now. Surely he has borne our what? Remember that word from earlier? That's the word usually translated what? Sickness, disease. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Again, we saw that word earlier. That's a word for physical pains
1: and suffering and affliction. And we know that this involves physical deliverance
0: because in Matthew chapter 8, verse 17, it's quoted. In 16, it's quoted. And then Matthew makes a comment. In verse 17, and this is Matthew recording after Jesus was casting out demons and healing people, healing them of all kinds of diseases and infirmities, then Matthew says this was to fulfill What was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. And maybe you've read that before and thought, that sounds a little different than it was in the Old Testament because, you know, there are different ways to translate the same terms, but that's the idea behind it. It was in this text all along. But the Lord said that the atonement of Jesus Christ would deal not only with the root, but the fruit, not only with sin, but all of sin's effects. They have, sin has a great effect in every area of our life. When sin came into the world, it brought disease, it brought sickness, it brought malady, it brought pain and suffering, and yes, the end of all of that, it brought what?
1: It brought death, didn't it? It brought death. Death was never a part of God's good world in the beginning
0: but we brought death into this world. we brought sickness and pain and suffering and and brokenness all into this world. Humanity has because of our sin. But in his atonement, he delivers from every effect of sin, sickness, disease, and death itself, so that in fact, his death is the death of death. He took away the curse by becoming a curse for us. Now, those people that Jesus was healing in in Matthew chapter 8, he was healing of their diseases and all of these maladies. Well, those people, and even the people that he raised from the dead, they eventually died in the end. But Jesus, the Savior, in his earthly manifestation, gave them a foretaste of the glory that is to come because of his work on the cross. And one day, all who have died in Christ will be raised in bodies of glory. No more diseases, no more sickness, and
1: no more death. Christ is the first fruits of that in his resurrection, and then
0: all of those who are his at his coming. What a foretaste of deliverance, how unwavering our hope, Christ in power, resurrected as we
1: will be when he comes. This is the Christian gospel. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And these people who testified that, they could testify that Christ bore the
0: iniquity of them all because they had come to a different viewpoint, right? Isn't that what this whole chapter is? It is the testimony of people who once thought one way about the Savior and now think differently about him. And for those people, he laid down his life. Though they once despised and rejected him, they've come to interpret his death in the light of God's word. In short, they've come to believe. And believing, they're able to see. They're able to see the cross for what it really was. God in Christ taking their place
1: under his own just judgment. you have eyes to see that you have a heart of faith to see the cross for what it is
0: to be moved towards that savior in your soul and in your spirit until you are united with Jesus Christ by faith i ask you what else will you do with your sins if you do not lay them upon the lord jesus christ how else will you be rid of your sin You don't have the strength to bear up under it. Listen, the weight of your guilt is going to weigh you down, down, down until it takes you into death and hell. There is no other way for us to be rid of this burden on our backs, this weight of guilt, this impending sense of the judgment of the almighty God when we inevitably die and stand before him in judgment. There is no other way to be rid of that. There's no other way to be assured that that burden has been taken away than to have the Son of God literally bear it in his own body and carry it far, far
1: away. You who are tempted to think of sin as a light thing, it's not a big deal. Look at the cross. Look at the
0: Son of God crushed under the load of sin.
1: Sin is not a small thing. And if he does not bear your sin, it will drag you to hell. But you who are burdened, who feel the weight of that burden, who are downcast, laboring under the sense of the judgment of God. For you, I have a word. For you who are longing to get rid of your guilt, I say to you, look to the Lamb of God who takes away sins. He does.
0: See him hanging there on that cross, chastised by God himself, right up there where you should be. For all of your guilt and all of your sin, but God provided him to be a substitute. You know, we began our service today with a scripture reading from Leviticus chapter 16 and the account of the Day of Atonement when the two goats were killed. The one goat was to picture our sins being judged and it was killed and offered as a sacrifice to God. The other goat being used to picture our sins being taken away. And remember that the Bible says the priest would come and he would lay his hand on the head of that goat and he would confess the sins of the people, as it were, symbolically transferring those sins to that animal. And then that animal was led out Into the wilderness, their sins being born in its body, taken far away, never to be seen again. That's the picture of what God is doing in Christ on the cross for all who would believe in Him. Charles Simeon was one of the most famous evangelical preachers in 18th and 19th century England. He spent over 50 years laboring in the same congregation although he came to that church amidst great opposition. Uh, at one point, the, some of the people of the church locked the church pews so that no one could come and sit and listen to the man preach. And so out of his own purse, he purchased seating for the congregation and had it brought in and set it in the church. And they took those chairs and dragged them all out and threw them out into the street. One day he was on his way home from preaching in the service and some ruffians lay wait for him and threw rocks at him as he passed through a dark
1: alley trying to run him off. He was, uh, But he was faithful. He
0: persevered. He actually outlived all of his detractors. <laughs> And in fact, preach the gospel in spite of that so faithfully that many, many hearts were changed. But when Simeon was first entering into college in 1779 at Cambridge, he, he was far from that kind of man. He was actually a worldly, unconverted man, just lost like sheep going astray. And he was informed upon his matriculation to the college that he would have to partake of the Lord's table during, as, as part of some Easter celebrations that were taking place, and it was three weeks away. And so he just came under the fear of God about that, to partake of the body and blood of Christ in his state of soul. He knew he was far, far from the Lord. And so he determined that he should read and to pursue the things of God and to see if there was some way for his soul to be saved. And so he picked up uh, a volume that was an expounding on the Lord's Supper. And, and he, he wrote this In Passion Week, as I was reading on the Lord's Supper, I met with an expression to this effect that the Jews knew what they did when they transferred their sin to the head of the offering. The thought came into my mind, what, may I transfer my guilt to another? Has God provided an offering for me that I may lay my sins on his head? And God willing, I will not bear on my soul my sins one moment longer. Accordingly, I sought to lay my sins upon the sacred head of Jesus. And on Wednesday, began to have a hope of mercy. On Thursday, that hope increased. On the Friday and Saturday, it became more strong. And on Sunday morning, Easter day, April the 4th, I woke early with these words on my heart and my lips. Jesus Christ is risen today. Hallelujah hallelujah. And he said, from that hour, peace flowed in rich abundance on my soul. And at the Lord's table in our chapel, I had the sweetest access to God through my blessed Savior. Friend, you ought not to bear your sins one moment longer, but to run to Jesus and lay your hand of faith upon him and confess your sin to God and see him bear those sins away. See him suffer in your place so that God's justice is completely exhausted against those sins. That you may be right and at peace with the Almighty. You ought not let one moment longer pass but lay your sins on Jesus
1: even today, even this moment, even as we pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me? Oh, Heavenly Father, I pray that the gospel would come with power
0: to some unconverted person today, that a soul would be transformed A mind would be changed. A life would be turned around. I pray that you would manifest your grace. Now, friends, I'm going to give you a moment to just continue to pray silently where you are. And I urge you, if you are really understanding this message, this central Christian message for the first time, I pray that you would, right now, as it were, with your hand of faith, Place all your sins on Jesus and receive Christ believingly as the atonement for your sin, as the substitution under the wrath of God for all of your rebellion against him, all the ways that you've disobeyed his law. Tell him that right now. Confess your sins
1: and confess your faith in Jesus, the Son of God.